Dennis Levick. This is my lovely wife, Tracy. Hi, I'm John Rudnick. We're Barry and Anita Chenault. My name's Edward Devlin. My name is Rosalie Devlin. Hi, we are Brent and Sheila Howell. My name is Matt Leesman. Hi, my name is Hannah Rollins. My name is Chad Peterson. So evangelism to me is just basically sharing the gospel, um, outreaching to non-believers. I guess I work in a place where talking about being a Christian, talking about God uh, can almost be like a laughable subject. It's difficult to openly talk about um, being a Christian and, and the struggles of being a Christian or you know the, the happiness that being a Christian can bring you. Church, church for me has been the one of the few places in the world that I've been able to find good people. Church to me is just community coming together um, to worship God, hold each other accountable, um, serve the community, outreach, um, all those things. Well, good morning again, church. Go ahead and grab out your notes, and you can actually go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 17. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you that you were created for a season such as this. God in his sovereignty and his love and his grace and his mercy created you to exist, to be in this current time, this current season, to be alive in 2022 in this current culture. You know, last week I simply asked you the question, does anybody out there think the world is crazy right now? Does anybody think our culture is crazy? Raise your hand up, okay? And I think some people have two hands up this week as well. You know, it really is true, but at the same time, you are created for a moment such as this. To live in this world with all of its craziness, all of its sinfulness, inflation on the rise, gas prices jumping up again, people not knowing what to think about God or the things of God. You were created to live and breathe and be in this current culture. But is this what you expected? Is living in 2022 what you expected? In fact, let me just ask you another question, okay? How many of you maybe thought as the year started, you were expecting some things to happen, certain things to go a certain way, but the reality of this moment is that the opposite has happened. Raise your hand up. You're expecting life to go one way, something in your life to be one way, but now the opposite has happened. In fact, for 2023, I'm going to go ahead and declare the theme for next year, okay? This is it, right? You don't have to write this down, but the theme for 2023 is to expect the unexpected and trust Jesus. Because we have no idea what's going to happen in the upcoming year, but we can still trust the Lord. You know, sometimes believers expect the world to be different, but the reality is that we need to see the, way, the world the way that God sees the world, Sometimes when there's a gap in our expectations our, and what we see in our realities, it can actually shrink our faith. But sometimes what we're expecting isn't reality. But that gap between reality and expectations doesn't have to shrink what we believe about Jesus. In Acts chapter 17, where we're going to be today, this is part of Acts that covers part of Paul's missionary journeys. 
In fact, if you read Acts chapter 13 through 18, these are all of his journeys. But right here in chapter 17, we are on the tail end of his second missionary journey. God would tell Paul that, yes, he's going to take the gospel to his Jewish brothers and sisters, but also take the gospel to the Gentiles. You know, right now in our kids' ministry, our kids have been learning about the life of Paul. And I loved hearing our kids last week after church was over, our two sons, they were sitting at a table telling us about what they were learning about the life of Paul in their class over there in Coastal Kids. And they were talking about how God saved Paul and how God would use somebody like Paul even though he was so against the church. In fact, for the fact that God would use somebody like Paul, it was unexpected to them. In fact, I know I just turned you to Acts, told you to turn to Acts chapter 17, but flip back over to Acts chapter 9 and look at the way that Paul was before he came to know Jesus. Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, But Saul, who would become Paul, but Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Church, look at that. Paul, before meeting Jesus, was breathing out threats and murder against the church. He would find anyone who was part of the way, which is just another way of saying anyone was a follower of Jesus, anyone who was a follower of Jesus, he would have them bound, men or women. Come on, hide your wife, Hide your kids. Paul was a terrorist against the church. And it's so crazy to think that God would use this person after Paul meets the risen Lord. God would take this terrorist against the church and use him as a chief instrument to build his church. It's just a reminder that if you think your sin is great, the Savior is greater. If you think you are too far gone from the grace of God, there's a bloodied cross and an empty tomb that says something different. It's just a reminder that if you think that your story that Jesus has been writing in your life is just for you, you're wrong. In fact, the story of Paul shows that a life submitted to Christ can make such a difference in our world. You know, as, as Paul was a terrorist against the church, he, he meets the risen Lord and everything in his life changes in this moment. In fact, Paul was blinded, but he was also humbled. And the Lord would tell another follower of Jesus named Ananias to go and help Paul regain his sight, but also to help him take his next step into his calling. And I love Ananias' response in Acts chapter 9, verse 13. Ananias said to the Lord, after the Lord said, look, you're going to go help this man. Ananias said, but Lord... I've heard from many about this man named Paul, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Isn't it funny that Ananias was actually trying to inform God of something? Have you ever tried to do that, God? Don't you know this is happening in the world? And I'm sure what Ananias expected was that if he went to this guy who he he knew as Saul, who now was Paul, if he went to this guy, that more than likely he may be bound or killed or thrown into prison. And Ananias tries to inform God, God, don't you know what this man is like? 
And I can imagine that Ananias even expected that God's response would have been maybe something like, you know what, Ananias, I didn't even think about that. I didn't think about how crazy this guy was. In fact, he's too dangerous. Don't go near him. Leave him alone. He's like, I was just messing with you, Ananias. But God helped to shrink the gap between Ananias' expectations and a God-centered reality. Listen to what happens in verse 9. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias goes and he helps Paul and helps Paul see that this is what God is calling him to do. And I don't want to over-spiritualize a text that's already so good, but God uses Ananias, this devout follower of Jesus, to help him see and to help him step into his calling. And it's just another reminder that God uses other believers to help them see and do what it is that God has called them to do. This encounter with Christ and another church member with Ananias helped Paul to step into his calling. And side note, church, this is a reminder to you that you need the church. I, I've, been, I've been hearing a lot lately, especially coming out of COVID, that people have been saying, you know what? I don't really need the church. I just need Jesus, okay? I just need Jesus. And we talked about it last week. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you're still thinking about the claims of Christ, you do need Jesus. You need to be like him. You need to follow him. But you also need his church. In fact, God uses this other believer, part of his church, to go and help Paul to push him into what he's been called to do. And it's a reminder that we need the church. We need other believers to challenge us, to exhort us, to push us, to help correct us, to do the things that God has called us to do, to really to follow him. So after this encounter with Christ and this church member, Paul steps into following Jesus and fulfilling this call that God has on his life. Where we jump into the story today in Acts chapter 17, Paul's already been sharing the gospel. And he's already been seeing what it is that God's been calling him to do. But as Paul would share the good news about Jesus to, yes, Jews and Gentiles and even kings, man, God would set the expectations pretty clearly for what he was calling Paul to do. But see, as we look at this story today, did you know there's some expectations that God has on us when it comes to sharing the gospel? In fact, here, Paul shows us three realities that we need to see in sharing the gospel, three God-centered realities in sharing the gospel. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16, it says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Look, church, in sharing the gospel, first thing, write this down. We are to wake up and we are to look around. When it comes to sharing the gospel, we need to wake up and we need to look around. You know, it's so worth noting that even though we're jumping into verse, 17, verse 16 here in Acts chapter 17, that Acts chapter 17 is a wild 
chapter in the book of Acts. In fact, right before this, Paul and Silas and Timothy would share the gospel in front of a Jewish crowd. And at times, a Jewish crowd, they were blown away that Jesus was the Messiah. But at times, to say that they got mad that Jesus was the Messiah would be an understatement. In fact, at times, they were even enraged. In fact, look what it says in Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 7. It says, the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers, these other followers of Jesus, before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and they have come here to do also. And Jason has received them. And they, all, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So Paul and Silas and Timothy leave Thessalonica right there in Acts chapter 17. And then they head to this area called Berea, where similar things happen, where some believed, but some were also infuriated by the gospel as it was shared. And then it was in Berea that Paul and Timothy and Silas actually get separated. And then here we pick up where Paul is waiting on Timothy and Silas here in the city of Athens. So look again at verse 16. It says, now while Paul was waiting on them, waiting on Timothy and Silas, after all this craziness, sharing the gospel, some believed, some were infuriated. It says that he was waiting for them at Athens and his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Couple of notes here on verse 16. If you have one of those good old analog Bibles, I want you to underline the phrase that says his spirit was provoked within him. And I also want you to underline the phrase that says that he saw the city was full of idols. You know, when it says here, the city was full of idols, it literally means that this whole city of Athens was submerged in idolatry. You know, it's really evident even just from history that the city of Athens was one that was focused on all of these fake gods, literally engulfed in idolatry. In fact, at one point, too, it was a center of intellectual thought, philosophical thought, and also many religious discussions. They had a temple that was named after so many different gods, so many different temples, so many different worship spots after all these different gods, um, including the Greek god Poseidon, the god of the sea, um, including this one named Asclepius, god of healing, and also mainly the goddess Athena, who is depicted as a warrior goddess full of wisdom. This place was full of idols, dedicated to the gods who were created by human hands, and also by legends. There was a a 19th century professor at Oxford, a professor of theologian named Freddie Coney Bear. And this is what he said about Greek culture in the first century. He said the Greek religion was a mere deification of human attributes and a deification of the powers of nature. Literally taking human stuff and the stuff that God had made and making it into God. Paul saw that the city was wholly given over to idolatry and it broke his heart. It provoked his spirit within him. 
You know, if you were to take a trip maybe to, to Greece nowadays or maybe even see one of these statues or something like that in a museum, you might even have a sense of awe when you see those things. In fact, even right here on our own Virginia Beach, if you walk down to the boardwalk, you're going to see one of these statues of the Greek god Poseidon. Have you guys ever seen this before? Uh, we were riding down on the boardwalk just the other day and saw so many people gathered around this thing, taking selfies with these things. And there's something about seeing something like this. And we're like, wow, look at him holding that turtle. And it's kind of cool. Why does he have pants on? And, and we're, we're looking at this thing. But, man, there should be something in us instead of saying, let me get a selfie with that, to pause and say, wait, this is an idol. This is an image of a fake God. And when Paul looked out at the city of Athens and he saw all these idols around, he wasn't engulfed in a sense of awe or trying to get a selfie with any of these idols. His heart was broken. His heart was broken that this city was given all of their hope, their trust to all of these different gods who weren't real. In fact, they even had some inscription on some of these temples that said that Caesar himself is God. And his heart was broken that these people who needed to know the one and only God were giving glory and praise to all of these fake idols. But that was the first century. Let me ask you another question, church. Does idolatry still exist today? I know you're probably not going to go to Walmart and buy something and take it home and set up an altar to it inside your house and worship it. There aren't necessarily these temples to all these fake gods around here today, at least not American culture. If you go to some other countries, there are actually temples dedicated toward idols. But in 2022, idolatry is sneaky. Author and theologian Tim Keller, he has a really good definition of idolatry that helps us to see if it's even existing in our lives today. Look, he says, look, the human heart is an idol factory, Idolatry is taking something, whether it's good or bad, taking something and making it an ultimate thing. And he goes on to say that any dominant cultural hope that is not God himself is a counterfeit God. Idols then do not only take individual form, but can be corporate and systematic and systemic. When we are completely immersed in a society of people who consider a particular idolatrous attachment normal, it becomes almost impossible to discern if, almost impossible to discern it for what it is. And what he's saying here is that, look, if there is something that we have taken, whether it's good or bad, and we've making it an ultimate thing, even putting our hope and our trust in it, it's an idol. In fact, in 2022, I have a list I wanted to share with you. There's some sneaky idols that can creep up in our life, even if they are a good thing that we can try to make into an ultimate thing. And one of those things is a successful career. Now, again, like this is a good thing. Having a successful career is a good thing. But is it the ultimate thing? Is all of your hope and your trust in your career and your job and what you do? Another idol that can be in the church or even outside the church is political leaders. Now, I know that this is one that maybe doesn't, it doesn't need any explanation. And let me just say, you know what? Like at the end of the day, at the end of the day, like I want you to vote church. 
In fact, the elections are coming up in November. I want you to be informed, and I want you to pray about who to vote for. I don't want to make sure you vote. In fact, if you're not registered, I don't know if the deadline's even passed, but you need to make sure you register to vote if you're 18 or older. And in fact, you don't get to complain if you didn't vote in the upcoming election, okay? But some people would say, if my guy or my gal doesn't make it into the White House, doesn't make it into the office, then all hope is lost. It's over. If my person didn't make it in there, then then our future is dead. But come on, church, our future is not in anyone who sits in the White House or sits in any state office. Our hope is not in any president or congressperson. It is in the Lord. Even when it comes to politics, don't make something or someone an ultimate thing. Our hope is still based on the one who is the ultimate one, who is the ultimate thing. There's no one that should, you should place all of your hope in other than Christ. Um, another thing that's pretty common is money or material possessions. Um, I think that's pretty, pretty normal. I mean, a lot of times like, we can drift into making this an ultimate thing, an ultimate thing we're trying to receive or get. But one of them is also pretty sneaky. Going to put the next one up is happiness. I mean, have you heard this lately in our culture that one of the main things that should be the driving force in your life is happiness? Look, if your job isn't making you happy, quit it. If your spouse isn't making you happy, quit it. If things in life aren't making you happy, you need to stop. But again, is happiness the ultimate thing? Because God isn't necessarily calling you to a happy life. And we already talked about, yes, God does want to bless you, and the, bless, the word blessing, the original language, does mean happier or happiness. God does want to bless you, but he also wants to make you holy. So if you're going through a season that's difficult, is happiness your idol? Have you made this something an ultimate thing? And then one more that I think is super, super sneaky in our 2022 culture. And I kind of lump them all together. It could be love, family, or relationships. In fact, sometimes when it comes to relationships, we can make either the goal of being in a relationship, getting into a relationship, we can make that an ultimate thing. And yes, it is a good thing, but right now, single person in the room, is that your ultimate goal? Is that the thing that you have placed your ultimate security in is if I can just get into a relationship? Because more than anything, first and foremost, you need to know the one, again, who is the ultimate one. Your security needs to be in Christ. In fact, no one can ever love you to the full potential that you could be loved until you know the one who is the very definition of love, the one who created love. And we don't need to look at a relationship as being our ultimate thing. Jesus still is the ultimate one. We need to start first and foremost with him. Church idols still exist in 2022. But this is a sneaky little thing that can try to sneak into our lives. And all that to say is at the end of the day, look, we need Jesus. We need to be like Jesus. You need to follow him. Look, we, we're, we're not the type of church that preaches um, a prosperity gospel, but we also don't preach a poverty gospel as well. But we do preach a gospel that is centered on Christ and his kingdom agenda. 
So Paul, Paul, when he went to Athens, look, he could have been captured by the beauty of the city and the opulence and all these statues and monuments and temples. But instead, it, it broke his heart. It disturbed his spirit to see that people were putting all their hope and desperately chasing after all these other gods. In sharing the gospel, we also need to wake up and look around. You know, my wife and I, we've been living in this area now for about a year and yes, traffic on 64 is a nightmare. Yes, bridges opening all the time can be a bit annoying. But we love the life that we see in this area. All the new homes going up and all the, all the different activities that you can do in this area, from the trails to the beaches to the fun, unhealthy restaurants that you can eat all around this place. And it's so easy to just work, to be comfortable, and to enjoy living. But our comfort can't be our idol. And happiness can't be our God. We need to look around like Paul did and see that people are chasing after hope that is not God himself. And it should break our hearts just like it did with Paul. Write this down, church. Right now, 65% of the people in Chesapeake are not going to church anywhere. I know sometimes it might be easy to think because there seems like there's a church on every single corner or every single block that everyone and their mom is going to church. But right now in Chesapeake alone, 65% of the people that live in this community are not connected to a gospel-centered church. That means two-thirds. Two-thirds of your neighbors, your coworkers, the people who are sitting in the classrooms with you at school, two-thirds of them are not connected to a gospel-preaching church, which means that they've either given up on Christ or they've never given him a chance. We need to wake up and look around, see the need. There's a whole community of people that are literally putting their hope in all of these other things, but they need to put it in Christ. Church, we need to pray that, Father, you would break our hearts for what it is that breaks yours. We need to see that our city is broken, but they are in need of the gospel. And sharing the gospel, we really do need to wake up and look around, but there are people in Chesapeake and Virginia Beach who need Jesus today. And then number two, in sharing the gospel, we also need to prepare and we need to practice. In sharing the gospel, we need to prepare and we need to practice. Acts chapter 17 and verse 17. Listen how the story continues. It says, so Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something New. You know, Paul, again, look, he saw that the city was submerged in the hope found in idols. 
an imitation of hope driven by imitation gods. And his heart was broken. So what did Paul do? He was driven to action. Note that in verse 17, it says that Paul reasoned with these devout Jews, people in the marketplace, and these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, the Epicurean philosophy, look, they taught that the chief end of man was the avoidance of pain and ultimately freedom from pain. They also did not believe in the afterlife. So now was the time to get as much pleasure out of life, to enjoy much pleasures out of life, because you did not have an afterlife. John MacArthur actually even notes that they did not deny the existence of gods, but they believed that gods did not play or involve themselves in the affairs of men while they're here on earth. And the Stoic philosophers, they were based on pantheism, which Prima says that everything and its mom is God, that God is really every single, every single thing that you see. They also had this goal to seek freedom from pain, but the most important thing in life for them was to follow one's reason and to be self-sufficient. So one group of people in essence said, everything is God, and the most important thing in life is to be self-sufficient and to avoid pain. The other group said, get as much pleasure as you can out of life right now. Uh, There might be some gods out there, but for the most part, they leave us alone. So now is the time to eat, drink, and to be merry, and to do whatever you want. And it says that Paul reasoned with them. A couple of notes on just how he did that. The first thing is he started where they were. And Paul was the master at this. With the Jewish people, he would start in the Old Testament and bring them to Christ. With the Greeks and the Gentiles, he would start with something around them where they were, and he would teach them about Jesus In fact, listen to what it says here again in verse 22. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This unknown God was probably just a a leftover uh, altar or temple that they had just to make sure that they didn't miss all the gods that they were trying to deify out there. And Paul says, look, what what, what you think is unknown has become known. In fact, I want to point you to one God who is known, who is the one and only God. Paul started where they were and he reasoned with them. When you are reasoning with someone, it's usually a good place to start exactly where they are but it also means that you need to know what it is that you're talking about as well. Which brings us to the second way that Paul shared the gospel or what he did like to prepare and to practice and share the gospel. It's simply this, he actually shared the gospel. In fact, he had done it many times before this. If you go back and read Acts chapter 14, verse one, Acts chapter 17, verse two, and even earlier in Acts chapter 17, verse 10, Paul shared the gospel so many times. And there's something about sharing the gospel over and over and over again, knowing the core facts of the gospel that refines it in you. In fact, practice makes progress when it comes to sharing the gospel. You know, we did this last week, and one of the goals as we're going through this series is that we want everyone to know the core facts of the gospel. And in fact, I'm going to help you practice that right now, okay? 
Um, everyone, if you are able, you need to stand up and you need to find a partner. Yes, we're going to do this on Sunday morning in church. Everyone, you need to find a partner right now, okay? Stand up. You're going to find a partner if you're able, okay? And you're going to tell that partner the core facts of the gospel. We're going to have it up here on the screen for you. We're going to put the core facts of the gospel on there, okay? And we're going to all do this together on the count of three. Let me just show, you, show it to you again. The core facts of the gospel are just this, that Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and Jesus bodily rose from the dead. Okay, so I want you to take just two minutes. I just want you to look your partner in the eye, and I want you to tell them, Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and Jesus bodily rose from the dead. All right, now some of you guys are just talking about something else. Sit down, okay? Sounds like more than what was up there. Look, there's something about actually knowing what the gospel says, knowing what we need to tell people when we're sharing the gospel, that when it come, when God opens a door, that it's not robotic coming out of us. And that's why we even printed out all these how to share the gospel guides for you as well. And if you didn't get one last week, I want to challenge you. You would grab one and take it home with you today. And you would even look through this and know the core facts of the gospel. But also, I want to challenge you as well to look at these tools that we've given you, how when you're having a conversation with someone, to actually walk them through the gospel, to be able to lead people through it. And again, there's something just like what Paul did. So many times he had shared the gospel, he had preached the gospel, he had shared it with individuals and with crowds that it just came out of him. So when he saw the brokenness that was in the city, when there were some people to have a conversation with, Again, Paul was ready to share the gospel. It wasn't something he was stumbling through or worried about, but it was already in him. He had practiced it. He had prepared it. He had shared it so many times. And I want to challenge you as well, church, to do the same thing. Know the core facts of the gospel. To pick one of these tools that's in here and to lean into it. So as you pray for an open door that you can be ready to share the gospel with someone. So Paul shared the gospel before. He was ready to do it. But see, Paul also came from a heart of compassion. You know, last week we talked about how even with Jesus, even with Jesus, he didn't view people as a number. Even with Zacchaeus, he called him by name. And then he went to his house. It was from a place of actually caring for Zacchaeus and wanting to be in relationship with him. And even though they had called Paul a babbler and said, look, these are some weird things that you're saying, Paul still came from a heart of compassion. His heart was broken for the people who were putting all their hope in these idols. So he was ready, he was prepared, but he also came from a heart of love for the people. You know, here at Coastal, we say that in every situation, we want to do the most loving thing. And as we love people, again, they are not projects, but they are people who God cares about. And we need to be ready to share the gospel from a heart of compassion. You know, Peter would say it this way. He says, look, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
We come from a heart of compassion when we're sharing the gospel. So in sharing the gospel, look, yes, we prepare and we practice because practice makes progress in sharing the gospel. But in sharing the gospel, number three, we also need to mind the gap between our expectations and our reality. We need to mind the gap between expectation and reality. Look again what Paul says here, right here in verse 30. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Barna Research Group in 2018 actually did a survey of followers of Jesus. And they were comparing this 2018 survey to one that they did back in 1993. Now, I know some of you weren't born yet, but stay with me, okay? Back in 1993, this survey found that nine out of 10 followers of Jesus knew that it was important that they, would need, that they needed to prepare for and be ready to share the gospel. In 2018, when this survey was done, it found that now 64% of followers of Jesus thought it was important to share the gospel with, God, with the people that God had put in their lives. That's a 26% drop in followers of Jesus thinking that it's important to share the gospel. That will not be true of our church. And sometimes, sometimes I, think it's tr- I think it's true that maybe we think we need to be the most eloquent person in the world when it comes to sharing our faith. Sometimes maybe we're, we're expecting that no one really cares about what Jesus wants to do in their life. And sometimes we have all these preconditions, all these expectations on when it comes to sharing the gospel, we need to set those expectations centered on a God-centered reality. And right here, look, Paul shares some things with us that we need to expect, but are also reality. Look, here's a couple of things to note, okay? First of all, we can't save anyone. Look, you're not the one who does the saving. In fact, Paul says, look, it's this Jesus who God resurrected from the dead. He is the judge. He is the one who does the saving. It is the Lord who actually draws everyone. Look, he's saying, look, it is the Lord who's calling these people to repentance. It's God by his Holy Spirit drawing people to himself. But see, he works through us to reach someone. Listen to verse 32 again. It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. So we can't save anyone. It's the Lord who draws everyone, but he works through us to reach someone. And we need to remember too that some will say yes, some will say maybe later, And some will say, this is stupid. You know, a few years ago, I was ministering down in Danville, Virginia. And in Danville, Virginia, Danville is the type of town, like, you don't drive to it, you drive through it. 
But I was ministering down there, and we had started a small group for young adult college A students because there's a local university down there called Aver University. And one of the young men who started to come to the group that I was leading, his name was Anthony. And Anthony only came to church because there were some cute girls there and he wanted to meet cute girls. And that is okay. But as he started to have conversations, he started to ask all these questions about Jesus and about life. And he and I had some similar stories. In fact, his parents had immigrated from Jamaica years ago and he was born in the U.S., as well. And we both were more fans of nerd things rather than sports things. So we got along very great. And we started to have all these conversations about Christ. And as we started to do these things, I kept sharing the gospel with Anthony. I can remember one time we sat down in a Panera Bread in Danville. I remember I walked him through one of these things right here. In fact, in this case, it was the Romans Road. I told him, Anthony, you know, you've had some, some brokenness happen in your life. We've been having all these conversations about what life is really all about. But at the end of the day, look, it's really about what you know about Jesus and whether you're going to trust him with your life. So let me share the gospel with you again. And we walked, I walked him through the Romans road and talked about how, yes, we, are all, we all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. But see, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if we repent of that sin, if we believe and receive the gospel, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you will be saved. Not only that, look, man, you will get eternal life. You'll get to be with Jesus from now into forever. But even right now, he wants to give you life to the full. Anthony, are you ready to give your life to Jesus? He said, no. I'm not. In fact, I don't, want, I don't want to have anything to do with this. I said, man, well, okay. I said, man, I really think all these conversations that we've been having, look, God is after your heart. How about you just take some time and pray, and then we'll meet again, and we'll talk about this some more again. And he said, okay. He's like, I will hear you later. The next time we met, um, he said he wanted to meet again. We sat down at the same restaurant. And I said, hey, man, do you have any more questions about what we talked about when it came to the gospel? And before I was even done, he said, I don't have any more questions. He said, I'm ready. He said, I was ready that day. But I, 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 didn't, I didn't want it for some reason. But right there in that moment in a restaurant, he prayed to receive Christ in that restaurant. And sometimes church, like, we just need to think about, okay, what are our expectations when it comes to sharing the gospel? Sometimes I think we're thinking, look, it's all about us. Like, we're going to be the ones that say, but you can't save anyone. It's the Lord who does, does the drawing. But does he want to use you? Yes. Do you need to prepare and be ready? Yes. Do you need to know the gospel inside and out so it flows out of you, so it doesn't sound like you're some sort of robot trying to convert a number, but instead you're trying to actually share from a heart of compassion what Jesus wants to do in somebody's life? Yes. So we need to prepare, we need to be ready. We need to adjust our expectations and lead into a God-centered reality. There are people out there right now in our community, God's placing your circle of influence that need to hear about Jesus. And as our worship team goes ahead and makes their way back up to the stage, church, I just wanna challenge you to do three things, okay? You know, last week we had you write down, who's your one? or your three, or your 10, that you know right now who are far from God, that you wanna make sure you commit to prayer right now, that God would open a door. 
And I want to challenge you that you would pray for those people right now that you know who are far from God to keep praying for them. But I also want to challenge you that you would prepare, you would practice. You would prepare by knowing the core facts of the gospel. And then you would also practice. Practice on a friend. Man, practice on your dog. Dogs can't be saved. But practice on somebody. Say these things out loud. Run through it so you know it so well. So when God does open the door, you know, look, I, I can't save this person, but I know for a fact that God's going to use me to reach them. So will you pray? Will you prepare? And will you practice? Father God, I want to thank you, Lord, for just how good you are to us. And Lord, just to think as a reminder again that we were once far from you, but to think while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, sometimes I still think about how you can use a guy like Paul, who was a murderer, breathing threats against your church so far from you, but let, yet Lord, you said that this guy, I'm gonna use to reach someone. And God, it's the same thing with us. God, our sin is not greater than the Savior, but Lord, you've called us and you've commissioned us, Lord, to share the gospel. So I pray, God, we will be committed to that. In fact, Lord, I even pray that the lostness in our community, the people who are finding hope in all these other things would be driven down because of the people sitting right here in this room. God, I pray that people will come to know you and trust you and become fully devoted authentic followers of you as a result of people who are really willing to pray and to practice and to share the gospel. We love you, Lord. We trust you. Use us in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, church, let's stand and sing one more song.